Welcome to Sounds Jewish, direct from Jewish Book Week in the heart of literary London in Bloomsbury. I'm Jason Solomons. In this month's Sounds Jewish, we'll be speaking to some of the authors packing the crowds in here at the Royal National Hotel in Bloomsbury, including Amos Oz and William Sutcliffe. And we'll sample Yiddish cabaret with David Schneider. And we'll find out why Jewish mothers and fathers can really mess with your mind. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Jewish Book Week is now widely regarded not only as a high point in the Jewish calendar, but as one of London's leading literary festivals. So just having a look at the various books that are on uh, sale for here, from the great Jewish joke book to the big book of Jewish humour, from Anne Frank to Golda Meir to uh, Ian Sinclair to Emmanuel Litvinoff's journey through a small planet. The people here are crowding around books uh, and talking about books. It really is uh, a hubbub of Jewish animated discussion. Speakers come in here and sign their books for an adoring public and they are often buttonholed by them into long discussions about the merits of their own literature. Uh, what, what have you got there, sir? Rhyme Life and Death. Are you a fan of Amos's work? Well? well, I wasn't, but last night I, I went to listen to him. I was really fascinated. And this has made you want to come and buy the book? Absolutely. It was so lucid, clear. Uh, it was basically a, you know, a novelist talking about politics, not a politician talking about politics. That's what I really loved. As you heard from that gentleman there, the acclaimed Israeli novelist Amos Oz was in town at Jewish Book Week, kicking off the festival in conversation with Jonathan Friedland. But before they went on stage here in Bloomsbury, they had their own little conversation for Sounds Jewish in the green room backstage. So Amos Oz, the new book is called Rhyming Life and Death. I'm very taken by the fictitious poet in your uh, story. Uh, he seems to be part of a world, and in fact, at, w- at one point you describe it uh, the weekend supplement mm. of the Devar newspaper yes. and the Kupat Cholim mm. and the uh, literary evenings of adult education, etc. It's a, it's a part of uh, an Israel many people will recognize. You for a long time were absolutely part of it, uh, living on kibbutz, uh, etc. Mm. Uh, even in the book, you're set in the mid 80s, I think, it's already vanishing. Uh, a little bit. Now I presume you would say it's completely gone. And if it has completely gone, do you miss it? It's a bygone world. I miss it, but I don't idealize it. This world had its flaws. It was quite an oppressive world and not a very tolerant world. And it was a very demanding world and a very unifying world. I miss the warmth of this world. It was a warm world. It was a warm Israel. But this couldn't stay and couldn't last. It was the Israel of a small society of half a million or 700,000 people, not the Israel of millions. It was a rather monolithic Israel, whereas Israel today is a patchwork, a mosaic. And in that mosaic... The founding uh, group, if you like, that Ashkenazi, European, uh, uh, and, and left-oriented Labour Zionist world has become just one niche among many. I mean, many read that into the election results where Labour came down to 13 seats and uh, Meretz, which I, I know you've uh, been involved with, comes down to just three. As if, in other words, the once the ruling tribe of Israel for 29 years um, is just reduced to being another one of the squabbling groups, uh, in a, and, and there's a pretty small one at that, 
that make up Israeli society? It has been a small faction of the Israeli mosaic, not since now, but since 20 years now, perhaps since the first rise of Likud to power 35 years ago. What actually happened in this election is not that the uh, left-wing doves disappeared. They, in vast numbers, decided probably in the last minute to endorse Tsipi Livni's Kadima in order to block Netanyahu. They are the same moderate left-wing social democrats, doves, whom they have always been when they voted Labour and when they voted Merits. But this time they have made a decision, I think a wrong decision, but nonetheless an understandable decision, to endorse Livni and Kadima trying to block Netanyahu. So should we read into that then, that the peace camp is not quite as weak as it looks, because actually it isn't just the 16 seats of Labour and Merits, but you can add into that as a peace block among Israeli voters, the 27, 28 uh, garnered by Kadima, and therefore what? This is there's still a good 50, 55 seats worth of Israelis who believe in peace. This is exactly what I'm suggesting. I think the uh, majority, although not the huge majority of the Israelis, are still ready for a two-state solution, including many people who voted Likud. Many people who voted Likud did so knowing that Likud is now no longer opposed to the idea of a two-state solution. So if you passed a street referendum in Israel asking people, will you accept a two-state solution? I think the majority will say yes, but we don't trust the other party. It, it, it hasn't Likud and Bibi Netanyahu still actually, especially him, Netanyahu, he's never fully accepted, has he, a Palestinian state? I mean, I think, isn't it the case that if you're voting for Likud, you're still holding out against a two-state solution? Oh, actually, Netanyahu mentioned a two-state solution several times, not in the last election campaign where he avoided uh, the explicit expression two-state solution, but he used the expression several times before. And let me remind you and your listeners that many of the remarkable concessions for peace in the past were made by right-wing leaderships, by Menachem Begin when he gave back the whole of Sinai in return for peace with Egypt, by Ariel Sharon when he unilaterally evacuated all the Jewish settlements from Gaza and handed over Gaza to the Palestinians, and to some extent by Netanyahu himself in his previous term in office when he signed the Hebron Agreement with the Palestinians and handed over the most of Hebron to the Palestinians. You've been arguing for for it for a very long time, one of the very first, to see that that was the only way this thing could be resolved. But many people, even those very sympathetic to it, say... It's gone on so long, the settlements are so entrenched, the Palestinians are now divided, uh, formally split into two states almost, two governments of their own. Uh, And you have an Israeli system that almost breeds paralysis, where any coalition that tries to move uh, unravels and comes apart. And therefore they say the two-state solution, while being the only solution, is actually going to be out of reach for probably the foreseeable future, our lifetimes. I'm old enough to remember the days when I thought I will never live to see Egypt with my own eyes. I thought even if there is some settlement between Egypt and Israel, they would not let Israelis visit in Egypt. And I've been in Egypt three times with an Egyptian visa stamped in my Israeli passport. The same applies to Jordan. And I am old enough to tell you that in the Middle East, the word eternity forever forever and ever or never, means something between six months and 30 years. So you say that this has been going on for a very long time. In fact, it has not been going on for a very long time because in the history of 
both the Arabs and the Jews. 100 years of conflict is not a long time. I wish I could make it shorter, but it's not a long time. There's been some consternation uh, here, even in the British Jewish community, about the kingmaker of Israeli politics now, Avigdor Lieberman, particularly his demand that all Israelis, and it seems his target is uh, Israeli Arabs, swear an oath of allegiance to Israel as a Jewish state, um, and the kind of hint of menace that that seems to contain. How troubled are you, if you are troubled, by Avigdor Lieberman? I'm very troubled indeed. I think he is very dangerous and his attitude to the Palestinian-Israeli minority is appalling. He is part of a wider phenomenon. In peaceful Norway, foreigners hating parties carried more than 20% of the vote. In peaceful Switzerland, foreigners hating parties carried 18% of the vote, not to mention Italy and France and other countries. So apparently Israel is becoming part of a widespread and very worrying phenomenon, universal phenomenon. Except, I suppose, what people would say is these aren't foreigners. They're they're not newcomers to this land. They are born there. They're citizens there. Everybody is a foreigner to someone. You have been, over the years, sometimes a critic of Israel policies, but also a critic of the critics of Israel, especially those outside uh, and in Europe, I think. Um, In the reaction to Operation Cast Lead in Gaza, uh, perhaps, I mean, you should give us some context by telling us your own position on that, but also what you detected in some of the criticism here in Britain and elsewhere. That's a multiple question, really. In the first place, I thought Israel was right in responding by force to a lasting provocation. No country would have tolerated a reign of 10,000 missiles on one of its regions, lasting for years. If England was reigned, if Yorkshire was reigned by 10,000 missiles, England would not have turned the other cheek. Nonetheless, I thought Israel should have conducted, launched a limited, cautiously targeted and precise military operation against Hamas and not a full-scale, cruel, ruthless war on Gaza. And indeed, I called for an immediate ceasefire about 48 hours after the beginning of the operation. That's where I stand. Now, as for the critics of Israel outside, there is a certain inclination to see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in black and white. In fact, it's part of a certain leftist tradition all over. And perhaps the 20th century provided for this tradition because uh, many of the conflicts in the 20th century were indeed black and white. Apartheid was black and white. Vietnam was black and white. Colonialism and anti-colonialism was black and white. Uh, Fascism and anti-fascism was black and white. The Israeli-Palestinian is not. It's a complex clash, as I have said many times, a clash between right and right. Recently, it looks more like a clash between wrong and wrong. Mm. And the European imagination, what, can't cope with that? Unless it comes packaged in manichae and black and white terms, Europeans can't cope with it? Many well-meaning people in Europe feel comfortable waking up in the morning, signing a petition in favour of the good guys, launching a demonstration against the bad guys, and going to sleep feeling good about themselves. I have a very different approach to a conflict. When I see a site of a car accident with people bleeding on the road, My first worry would not be to find out who is the bad driver who caused the accident and launched a demonstration against him. My first worrying will be how to stop the bleeding and how to help the injured people scattered on the road. 
and how to bring remedy and how to heal the wounds. The question of who takes how much of the blame can wait. But I know this Chekhovian attitude is very different than the common attitude among well-meaning people in Europe. One of the great things about Jewish Book Week is you never know who you're going to find here. And I found uh, the, the, the man who's in charge of my, my favorite local restaurant, Otto Lenge. It's Jotam Otto Lenge. What are you doing down here at Jewish I'm Book Week? selling some books together with uh, Alex. This is your book? Yes, it's my book. I read it together with Sami Tamimi. And uh, we've managed to sell, to sell quite a bit today to very enthusiastic crowds. Would you say that your your food, because I eat at Ottolenghi quite a lot, probably a bit more than I, than I, I should tell you, really. More than I do. Yeah, it's probably more than you do, <laughs> But because uh, you're so slim, look at you. Um, but uh, do you, would you say the recipes at Ottolenghi are, are Jewish-inspired? No, I can't say that. It's not even a kosher book, but they, are, they do have... Uh, elements from my background which is a Middle Eastern background or Mediterranean background so it's you, 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 I think there is Israeli influence but I don't think there's much Jewish influence in the food no exactly but some of that culture comes through and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of exoticism I think in every bite of your food absolutely there's a lot of herbs and spices that are typical to, to that part of the world <laughs> You're listening to a Sounds Jewish special coming live from Jewish Book Week. I'm Jason Solomons, and I'm surrounded by four Jewish authors here. There should be a word for this. Is it like a huddle or a muddle? A canadle. A canadle. It's a beautiful canadle. I've got Olivia Lichtenstein here, whose former book, Mrs. Chivago of Queen's Park, is sitting right in front of me. It's piled up on top of Cosmo Landersman, Starstruck, Fame, Failure, My Family and Me. Cosmo, welcome to a podcast. Thank you, Jason. I'm honoured to be here today. I've got Michelle Hansen with me as well, whose new book, Living With Mother, isn't on the table because it's been selling out. Michelle, congratulations. Thank you. It's last year's book. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And I've also got William Sutcliffe with me, whose new book, Whatever Makes You Happy, is on the table. And my wife is currently reading at home, so I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't quote from my version. Well, I hope she's enjoying it. Of course she is. She's enjoying it. Your, your, the themes that unite all your work uh, were mothers, Jewish mothers, I suppose, in particular. The, the, um, the session was called Mamma Mia, not my Yiddish mama. Uh, and you, with your Canadian jokes, you, you, you'd have thought that, the, that the, the Jewish mother would dominate here, but the Italian one won out. Well, I think everyone thinks that Italian mothers and Jewish mothers are pretty much interchangeable, don't they? So it probably works. Well, what makes you, uh, Olivia, write about uh, mothers? Well, in fact, it's my new book, which is coming out later this year, which is called Things Your Mother Never Told You, which is about um, a daughter's relationship with her dead mother. And her mother's been dead for a year, and she's kind of haunting her. And I guess it was the sort of premise of, you know, how your mother never goes away, and even when they're no longer actually here, they're still with you. Uh, Cosmo, as well, your, your mother... Um Who's, who's written some fabulous poetry, I have oh. to say, in the time. I've, I've read it, I've used it, I've, heard, I've even read out some of your mother's poetry at people's weddings, Noch. Poor insane man. I'm sorry to hear that, Jason. There's hope for you yet, though. <laughs> what made you decide to write about her so, so candidly, so openly, so brazenly? Uh, it's called Therapy by Other Means. It's the cheapest form of therapy is to write about your parents. Uh, but your parents um, were the ones that probably needed the therapy of you writing about them. That's true. They certainly do after this. But actually, they've really enjoyed the new fame that has come as a result of my book. Uh, your book, uh, it, it's, quite, um, it's quite honest, really. It's quite... It, it, Brutally it, honest, Jason. <laughs> no holds barred. I tell the absolute truth about growing up in an, a star-struck family. Uh, and do you think that's rubbed off on you, Cosmo, in your perennial search for fame as you sit in the darkened rooms of Soho next to me? <laughs> no, that, <laughs> I think about other things then. Um, 
I don't think it's really rubbed off on me. I think it's given me a reaction, reaction towards their kind of manic pursuit. I think I've become the sort of quiet landersman, if such a thing is possible. Right, that's the quiet landersman. Hey, <laughs> 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 do you want to meet them? William, I'm going to turn to you uh, as well, because your new book, uh, Whatever Makes You Happy, starts off with, I suppose, something any Jewish boy can, uh, can relate to. It's a, a mother saying, fine, and, and, and the various levels of fine and what that entails. That's right. It's a, it's a novel about adult men and their mothers, um, which I think is an interesting topic and one that's actually never, talk, never talked about. I think it's an important relationship for all men right through their lives, quite possibly the second most important relationship of their life right through their adulthood. But men, for some reason, are really, really embarrassed about Second? About what do you mean second? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I forgot this was the Jewish podcast. Uh, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Uh, what what made you? Because it is it's a, it's a very good way into your, to your characters, uh, the, the kind of the frustrated and frustrating thirty something male. Uh, presumably, these are people you know quite well. Well, it is fiction, so um, you know, the, which always gives you somewhere to hide as a writer. You know, it's not, and also it's about three men and three mothers, which gives my mother somewhere to hide as well. Um, but it's it's mainly about that relationship. It's quite a high concept kind of comic premise, I suppose, which is that there's three men in their mid-30s, who are, who are from the same suburb of North London. They're all brought up together. They've all gone their own way. Whereas in the mothers in this suburb, they're all still friends. Um, and one morning, they're all sitting around moaning about their sons. Um, and they whip each other into a frenzy of annoyance. And they decide, all three mothers independently, decide to go and visit their sons and stay with them for a week to find out what's happening in their lives. So it's about that's kind of the nightmare scenario for a single man to have his mother moving in for a week. I don't know. Someone needs to do the washing. <laughs> That's not what happens. You need to read it. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, they're not all. They're not all ostensibly or, or, or obviously Jewish, though. No. Well, one of them is. There's one Jewish family and two two Gentile families. But in a way, I've tr- very much tried to go against the Jewish mother stereotype. I think that's a cliche, and quite a wrong wrong cliche as well. In a way, the, the Jewish mother in this is the most emotionally buttoned up of the mothers. Um, and there are other mothers that are more manipulative, more more demanding. And you, none of the mother son relationships are easy in this book. And spending a week together, it kind of clears the air in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily make everything better. And the book is, it doesn't end with they don't walk off hand in hand to the sunset at the end. Have you, has your mother read uh, the sort of bits of her that have surfaced in there? She has, but she she hasn't found herself, so I'm safe. She said it was fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Michelle, you uh, you write movingly uh, about your mother and have done for for, for several years in, in your Guardian columns. Uh, and your book is a, is a sort of collection of those. Collection of the columns about my mother because she lived with me for ten years, so I had to do something to cope with that. So, like as, as Cosmo said, very good therapy. You know, she was very good um, copy. So I had to tell her. You know, when she said I want to die, I would say, Well, you mustn't because I have nothing left to write about. And she was vital, <laughs> vital that you stick around for a bit longer. Uh, Michelle, as you say, your, your mother was the subject of your column. She was there in the house, presumably, while you were actually writing. Yes. Uh, was she there in your head, or did you kind of use it as some kind of revenge when she was particularly kind of spiteful to you? Could you go away, close the door, and say, right, I'm going to get you in print? No, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. I had to wait till I was not cross before I wrote them. Otherwise, they came out rather bitter and nasty. Mm-hmm. So when it has sort of all calmed down, then I could do it, and it was OK. Yeah. And she liked them. I used to read them to her. She was rather keen on it. Because, she, of course, she was in The Guardian, whereas her friend in Hove was only in the Hove local paper. So, you know, that was really great for her. <laughs> she liked The Guardian, did she? Because a lot of Jewish women don't. She liked being in The Guardian because it was a big newspaper and, you know, I had my picture in it and, you know, she could then say to Ruth Kingsley, who's only in the Hove Gazette, I'm in The Guardian. So that was fabulous. Would she preferred The Daily Mail, though? She would have read The Mail if I'd allowed, you know, Witso and The Daily Mail for my mother. <laughs>
Cosmo, um, Michelle talks there, she had to calm down, uh, not be bitter and twisted. That's not something that's ever concerned you. No, I'm happy to be bitter and twisted, and I just let it all come out. But I did use my parents, I must say, even though it is partly therapeutic, I wanted to use my parents to discuss wider issues, that I felt that their kind of self-obsession and pursuit of the limelight was something that was happening throughout society. So I tried to link the two of what was going on with my parents was going on with England as a whole, that everyone was becoming more self-obsessed. Everyone wanted to shine. Everyone wanted to be on television. So I, so I do justify my, my use of my parents in that way as well. What have they, what's their reaction been to it? Because I know recently, you're, and you've been quite, uh, quite uh, vocal about this, or in print at least, uh, you've, had, you've moved back in with them. I, had to stay, I, I got divorced recently, so I've been staying with them for a short while. And had they read the book by then? They had read the book. Uh, my father loves the book. My mother thinks I've been brutally unfair and that I should have written what a wonderful mother and the fact that I, she made me cinnamon toast when I was sick and brought me tea in bed. The fact that I didn't mention that is very upsetting to her. But they let you back in recently. They, they let, let you live. Because I have to look after my dad. He's a bit sick. He's not, he's not been well. And, and what's that uh, role reversal been, been like for you? It's quite fascinating. You write, write in the book about how they were, you know, talking about sex at the kitchen table uh, and, and turning up to school and parents. Now you uh, sort of have become the care of him. Well, I've always been the parent in the family. As I was growing up, they were getting younger, regressing throughout the 60s, and I was growing up. So I've always tried to raise two parents on my own. It hasn't been easy. <laughs> You've done remarkable. You and Benjamin Button. Thank you. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good fare here at Jewish Book Week. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Olivia Lichtenstein, Michelle Hansen, Cosmo Landersman, William Sutcliffe, thanks so much for joining us on this panel here at uh, Jewish Book Week and for Sounds Jewish on The Guardian. Thanks very much. <laughs> You're listening to Sounds Jewish from Jewish Book Week here at the Royal National Hotel in Bloomsbury. And I'm joined now by Rachel Shabby, who's just given uh, a talk on her book, Israel's Jews from Arab Lands. Rachel, just pitch me the book in 20 words or less. That's quite a tough ask, isn't it? Um, the book is about the um, social tensions that exist in Israeli society between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi Jews, Jews that came from Europe and Jews that came from the Middle East. And uh, it's a story that's not often heard outside of Israel, but I don't think you can really understand Israel's relationship to itself or to the Middle East until you understand this issue. Uh, Rachel, tell me why you're sort of uniquely qualified to tell this story, because you yourself, would you class yourself as a, as a Mizrahi Jew, as Sephardi Jew, as we, as we often call them here? I, I would class myself as a Mizrahi Jew, although in, when I got to Israel, I, I was um, amazed to discover that People didn't put me in that category because I don't look Mizrahi, apparently. So it would be, what, your family's from Iraq? Are you sure? What, both sides, really? And, you know, I would have to um, be quite insistent that, yes, despite my apparently looking European, I, I do have Iraqi roots. Um, so that in some way qualifies me to to talk about it. Just tell us about the makeup. What is the, the split in Israel between Ashkenazim and Sephardim or, or Mizrahim? This is what's not really known outside of Israel, is that 40% of the population are Mizrahi Jews. 40%? Yeah, yeah. And at one point before the Russian migration of the early 90s, the late 80s, the Mizrahim were the majority. Um, a Mizrahi Jew is from a Muslim or an Arab country. And that means that their culture, very much like my, my culture, is, is, a, is a background of Arabic language and uh, Middle Eastern music. Middle Eastern food and all these hundreds of sayings and phrases in Arabic. That's the culture of the Mizrahi Jews and that's a culture that you, you don't really see when you look at the image of Israel 
and how it plays to the to the world. Just tell us a bit about that, that those clashes of culture where you, you described earlier that, that, that the Mizrahim would be more about food and uh, Middle Eastern culture. Just tell us what, what, are, those, uh, what are those kind of tensions and, and, and contrasts with the, the kind of Ashkenazi culture? Mm. I mean, the fact that they come from different cultures isn't necessarily a clash per se. I mean, there's no reason why people of different cultures should be clashing just because they're different. But what happened in Israel was that... Um, the Mizrahim, because they came from the Middle East, were just assumed to be, you know, culturally inferior, back, backwards, uncivilized, and, you know, there then became this sort of interaction um, where that was how they were perceived, uh, and that informed uh, the sort of allocation of resources that they got and the cu- cultural power that they got, as a result of which the Mizrahi in Israeli societies now is quite a sort of socio-economically inferior concept. Um, if there is Mizrahi culture, it's low culture. Um, really? So, I mean, they're, they're discriminated about, uh, against to, to such an extent whereby uh, this comes out in lower paid jobs, uh, inferior housing, inferior health treatment. They really are sort of the second grade citizens. Yeah, for a long time they were actually called the second Israel. Um, and that was an improvement on being called the desert generation, i.e. a generation that was beyond hope. So there is very much this... Um, perception the Mizrahi has a weakened status and a weakened image in Israeli society seen as a sort of lovable but quite stupid character um, not that highly educated funny customs weird superstitions quite often religious there is a stereotype that still lingers about the Mizrahi in a way uh, one could assume if you're looking from the outside that a book like yours that kind of lays open these these tensions is ammunition for outsiders to say well look at Israel they, they you know they are they have a kind of an inherent racism involved in, in their country especially against Arabs now I, I can imagine that a lot of Israelis won't thank you for that well um First of all, I don't think I'm giving ammunition to the enemy. I make it quite clear at the start of my book that, you know, look, if you're looking for more ammunition with which to in some way challenge uh, Jewish nationhood or Jewish self-determination, then then you're not going to find it in this book. Um, And the other thing is that, yes, there are prejudices and stereotypes and biases that permeate Israeli society, but I'm not saying it's uniquely Israeli. You know, it's just that this book is about Israel. And also, it's really not just a book that just complains about. It's not a whingy book. Um, for me, what I really like about it is that it's a celebration of, of Mizrahi culture, a culture that you don't really see. And there's lots of really cool, animated, exciting characters in my book. So if anything, it's not so much an attack on Israel as, as a celebration of the people inside Israel. Yeah, you don't look like a whingy writer, I have to say. You know, you've got a great smile on your face. And tell me, who makes the best hummus? The Lebanese. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Book Week. Thank you so much for your book as well, for a very lively and, as you say, uplifting debate about Israel. Thank you for having me. Hello, what's your name? Hannah. Hello, Hannah. I can see you looking at, uh, looking at books here at Jewish Book Week. What, what's, what's your, what are you particularly interested in? Um, Van by Morris Glitzman. Why is that? Well, it's really interesting. It's about um, a boy called Felix and a girl called Zelda. They jumped off a death death train going to a concentration camp and they hide. And it's really interesting because they meet lots of people. They think of their enemies, but they actually hide them and help them. Wow. And what made you interested in that? Well, 
because I'm Jewish, I often find it really interesting because it's some of my family's history. Some of my family were in the Holocaust. And um, yeah, and it's also a really good book. <laughs> Down at Jewish Book Week, I'm Jason Solomons and I'm joined by a friend of Sounds Jewish, David Schneider. Welcome to Jewish Book Week. Welcome to Sounds Jewish again. Thank you. It's important to have friends. Thank you. Uh, you're here, you're going you're gonna to do a Yiddish cabaret here. Yeah, I'm quite excited about it, really. They've given me the chance to get a few acts um, together, some of whom speak Yiddish, some of whom don't, um, and perform something in the Yiddish tradition. I suppose it's something that if the Yiddish performers of the 1930s in Warsaw were around now, what would they do? It's that sort of thing. So it's a little bit more uh, edgy. It's a lot more edgy than you would get in the East End. You would have got in the East End. It's a lot more sexy, dare I say. It's a lot more um, satirical. Uh, wait, so that was the tr- a tradition that r- would rarely have been performed in London then? Yeah, very rarely. I mean, it was, it's called the Kleinkunst Cabaret. Um, and people like Zygen and Schumacher, who are quite well known in Israel, um, they came from it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a sort of marginal tradition. It was like the cabarets in the Weimar Republic, but in Yiddish. So are you going to be the, the, the MC for this? Are you going to be vilcoming us? I will be vilcoming or borocha boing um, for, um, for this night and doing some sketches and some songs and then there's some other other acts as well but i'm excited because there's myself there's judy battalion who's a, a canadian native yiddish speaker who's um young um and i'm very excited that, that there are these sketches that we've put together that there will be young-ish people that's a great thing about yiddish that you remain young until you're about 70 who will be ad-libbing performing cabaret in yiddish so will this be quite satirical about the modern uh, age or you're going to be doing 1930s gags no, 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 it's completely contemporary. It's, com- it's Yiddish gags, 21st century Yiddish. Uh, uh, whether it'll work or not, I don't know. But, it, you know, I've written sketches that work now uh, and that would work theoretically uh, on a cabaret circuit on a Thursday night, not a drunken Saturday night, but on a Thursday night. It's a little more cultured, slightly out, just after work, gearing up for the weekend. Exactly, sort of. yeah, exactly, that sort of thing, yeah. Uh, David, I wish you the best of luck with that. It sounds, uh, it sounds fascinating for, from the point of view, not just of a Yiddish speaker, but of, as a performer as well. Can you perform almost in a language that the audience don't quite understand? So there's, you'll be drawing on silent traditions as well, I should imagine, as a performer. That's right, yeah, silent traditions as well. But I'll be interested to see how many laughs the Yiddish gets and then how many laughs the English gets. Yeah, I'm sure you'll manage a couple of laughs. <laughs> yeah, you know me. <laughs> Lovely to have you. Good luck. Thanks, Jason. Thanks a lot. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this month's Sounds Jewish. Thanks to all my guests, to Amos Oz, to William Sutcliffe, to Rachel Shabby, David Schneider, to name just a few of the stars we've managed to pack in for you this month. Thanks to our sponsors, of course, to the Jewish Community Centre for London. For now, from me, Jason Solomons, and my producers, Sarah Peters and Juliet Simmons, it's goodbye. Shalom, shalom.